0: Amen. Well, you can go ahead while I'm kind of doing a couple announcements. Grab your Bibles if you have one. There's also one in the seats and uh, you can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Great worship this morning and uh, it's great to see you on this beautiful day. I'm just so excited it's fall. Beautiful weather and... um, and so, First Peter, chapter three, couple of announcements. Number one, just want to remind everybody that in between first and second services has been kind of some donuts and some coffee, which I'm shocked that that would work so well. Uh, I'm just shocked um and I think even today we ran out of coffee so I think this week we're even going to buy some more coffee makers to make room for more of you to come so if you come early if you're a second service attenders come early and then go down in the basement and you can meet some people and get some free food and everything like that give some to your kids let them get hopped up on it and uh that that will that will be great the second thing is, is that uh, Foundations on Thursday night was outstanding. We had such a great time. It was a dynamic evening and i just want to encourage you on thursday night 6:30 come man it's a great it's a great time we have treats we have drinks uh, we're getting on the same page as a church if you're investigating membership this is the thing to come to but even even if you consider cross point your home i just encourage you to come to that and also an update on the elevator i talked to Todd about the elevator in the back that helps people who 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 it's a little harder to use the stairs and they're going to get here on the 22nd it's Just one of those things, the parts got to come in, they got to come in, so we're working with Todd. Todd's a great guy, and he's going to fix that elevator back there, and so we're going to be able to go up and down. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. I am so pumped uh, to, to, to communicate this passage. I had a great time doing it in the first service. I'm really excited that I'm excited because I'm tired. You know what happens to preachers when college football starts? We stay up too late. Because the, the games go till like midnight now, and then you got to watch Sports Center, and it's really sinful. But anyways, First Peter chapter three, and let me read this passage. It's a it's a provocative passage. We've been going through this book in the New Testament, First Peter, verse by verse, and this is where we're pr- picking it up. And if you want to know why pe- preachers should go verse by verse, it's because of passages like this. Because I don't think we would naturally come and do this passage, but it's so good. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and listen carefully. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As I began to pray about this passage last night, I was going to bed and football was done and it was time for Pastor Josh to get some sleep. I was going to sleep, and I I was reading this book uh, right before I fell asleep, and it talked about C.S. Lewis in a speech he gave when he became a professor uh, at this school. And and one of the things he said that's happening in culture, he said, there's several things happening in culture that are kind of dangerous. He says that what's happening now, this is mid-20th century when he said this. He said that what's happening in culture is that we are celebrating change over permanence. He said that we're celebrating and worshiping the future over the past, and he said that we're celebrating the new over the old. In other words, we are beginning to look into our past and look to past ideas, and we're saying, hey, that's passé. That's no longer the way to seek life. The way to seek life is to recreate and remake various values. When we come to the passage of 1 Peter chapter 3, we are coming to a permanent passage that's rooted in the past. In fact, sometimes when we hear a passage like this, we begin to go, man, that sounds really archaic, and it sounds primitive, and it sounds not modern, and it it sounds kind of out of date. There's a reason for that. The reason why it sounds like that is because God is communicating something that he's communicated all the way back in creation, how he created man and woman, and how he created the idea of marriage. Sometimes permanent ideas are the powerful ideas for our life, amen? And sometimes what is old is actually never gets old. It's always new and refreshing, but it's unique. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to uh, go to my grandparents' house, and my grandparents lived forever. Like, they lived to be like 200 years old, like primitive, like Genesis age, right? But they were married for 75 years. And I remember being a little boy, and I used to go to their house in Kansas, and I used to sleep in in a room kind of across the hall from where they slept, and I used to be a little boy, and I used to hear them pray at night together. And they would pray out loud, and then, after they would pray at night, then they would talk until they fell asleep, and I knew they fell asleep because my grandfather would start snoring, you know you know, and was, they were asleep. I thought that was funny. Uh, did that look awkward? Sorry <laughs> you know i 'm not prescribing for us that that we have seventy five years of marriage, Sherry and i i don 't even think we could live that long at this point in our marriage, but what I am prescribing for you is a life where marriage is is this healthy, powerful thing. And what's happening is is that marriages are being destroyed. And I happen to think that one of the reasons why marriages are being destroyed and why relationships are so hard is because we are celebrating the future over the past. Because we're celebrating change over permanence. Because we're leaving some foundational things that are rooted not in society or culture, but in creation. What you and I have to remember is that God created marriage on the sixth day of creation. Before sin, before the fall, man and woman created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And on that sixth day, he brought Adam and Eve together in a marriage relationship. The two people became one flesh, and he gave them instructions of how they are to order their life. And if we want different results as exiles living in a fallen world than what the world is giving, we have to be open to what God has to say. Now, any time a preacher starts talking about marriage and roles in marriage, we begin to get into some sensitive territory. One of the reasons why it's sensitive is because not all of our marriage are doing so great right now. In fact, it's likely that maybe there could be a marriage or two in our church or that you know where there's a crisis happening. And let me be a pastor real quick in your life. And I just want you to know this. God loves you. Amen. And God is a healer and a restorer. And God can, bring, God can do above and beyond all you could ever ask for and imagine. And even if your marriage is in trouble, I don't want this sermon to put undue guilt on you or to make you feel like that you're a failure. Listen, we are all in the same boat. We are all broken. Amen. And I'm not a perfect husband. My wife is, well, she's pretty perfect. But, but we're, we're all broken. But just because we're broken doesn't mean we have to be defeated. And there is a difference between being broken and being defeated and being broken and seeking God for healing. So I want you to know, setbacks pave the road for comebacks. Amen? I was watching, uh, I don't know how many of y'all are are football fans, but I was watching last night uh, the OU Sooners play. Boomer Sooner, baby. Amen? And I was watching them, and they were horrible last night. Did anybody see that game, OU Tennessee? Josh, you saw that. They were horrible. They were bad, and they were way down in this game, and I kept watching them, and you know what happened in the fourth quarter? No matter, even though they were bad and I was ready to fire the coach, fire the quarterback, replace the whole team, you know what they did? They made a comeback, and they came all the way back, in two overtimes, we won, boomer sooner, and it reminded me, it reminded me that God has us in the game of life, and sometimes the first quarter doesn't go well. Second quarter, third quarter, it feels like you're late in the game but comebacks are possible because that's what God does. For the rest of us, you say, hey, man, I've got a pretty healthy thing going on in my, in my relationship to marriage. Or, or maybe you're single and you're like, man, I'm not even married and I'm kind of looking for what, what does marriage look like? Or, or God has called me to the blessed reality of singleness for his glory. This sermon has things for all of us to listen, to receive, to walk in, to, to relate to that, that can help us to make comebacks, to walk as broken but not defeated people. And so when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, we find all the resources we need to have a great home, a great life, great marriage, and even if it's not great, to begin to walk towards a great relationship. And let me give you a few things that I think that 1 Peter 3 kind of gives to us that helps marriages, husbands and wives. First of all, the first thing I think Peter is saying, which is said all throughout the Bible, is that we have to remember that God is ultimate, marriage is not you like, I want a great marriage, and I want to have great relationships, and I, I want to relate to people, and, and I want to relate to the opposite sex well, and I, I want to relate to my wife, uh, and, and wives, you want to relate to your husbands, listen, you've got to get this down, God is ultimate, marriage is not. The secret to life and to marriage is that God is ultimate marriage is not in fact first peter 3 he she, he talks about he says there in verse 1 he says wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be one everybody say one one by the conduct of their wives Peter is saying the most important thing that happens in a husband's wife. He's clearly giving a scenario where the wife is a Christian and the husband is not a Christian. And he's saying to the wife who's, who's a Christian, he's saying, listen, the most important thing that could happen in a man's life is not that he becomes a great husband. The greatest thing that can happen in a man's life is that he becomes a great worshiper of God. And how can we as men become great worshipers of God? We get reconciled and forgiven by God in Christ. And we begin to worship God as the source of our strength and our identity and our meaning and our sense of belonging. He's like, wives, you need to win your husbands. Not with your words. Not with the things that you say. But you need to win him through conduct because the most important thing is that he becomes a great worshiper. Again, he says in verse 5. He talks about holy women. He said, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. He's saying, not only is uh, being a great husband not the priority for a man being a great worshiper, but also wives, the most important thing is that you are women who hope in God. God is ultimate. He goes on to talk about to the husbands. He says to the husbands, he says, uh, uh, verse 7, he says, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I will come back to that. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. He's saying the most important thing that we men get through our head is that what makes us right with God is not our religious works, not our performance for God. What makes us right with God is the grace of God who gave his son for us in our place, who forgives us freely, not based on our performance, but on his performance on the cross. You are participators with God through grace. Amen, guys? And that's the most important resource for all of relationships, much less marriage. You see, we need a relationship with God. And one, one of the things that Sherry and I celebrate, that we kind of quote to each other, we're always preaching to each other Bible verses. And, you know, I mean, I'm a pastor and she's a pastor's wife, so you expect that. You know, you're like, you better, because you, you're the pastor and you need angels floating around you all the time and quoting Bible verses. But, but one of the things, one of our favorite passages over the years is Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. And this really points to the power of God being ultimate, not marriage. He says, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father. Far- pardon me, I read the wrong verses. <laughs> I'm having an off second service here. Verses 7 through 8. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord And turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I love that. He says, turn from evil, it will be healing to your flesh. Literally in the Hebrew, the word flesh there, the Hebrew word stands for navel. The literal translation is it will be healing to your navel. You can understand why the English translators was like, let's just put flesh in there. You know what I mean? Because that's just weird. But what a lot of scholars believe is that he's talking about the umbilical cord. It will be healing to your umbilical cord. Isn't that weird? And it reminded me of the, fir- the first baby I had, first baby daughter, Abigail was born. And the whole time Sherry was pregnant with Abby, I thought, I don't even, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be in the hospital room. My daddy wasn't in the hospital room when I was born. He was watching a football game. Can I get an amen? And my grandfather certainly wasn't in the hospital room back in because that generation, they just, they weren't even at the hospital when babies were born. They were just like, you know, I don't know, ring me, you know, tell me, right? But man, when, when the day came and Abby was born, guess who was in the hospital room? I was. I was so excited. And of course, I said, I'll never watch the birth happen. I watched the whole thing, right? And then I said, I'll never cut the umbilical cord. And the nurses said, Do you want to cut? Do you want to cut the umbilical cord? And I was like, hand me the scissors. And they gave me these fancy, like clean hospital scissors. They were silver and shiny and everything like that. And they held out the umbilical cord, and I took those scissors and I went <laughs> like that. And the umbilical cord was cut, and Abby was free from the umbilical cord. And literally, I held up the scissors in if I'm lying, I'm dying, I held them up in victory. I was like, ah, as if I had done some heroic thing, right? <laughs> As if I was the most important person in the room at that time. And I looked at the nurses and I said, can I keep the scissors? And she said, no. And I was like, how much money did I just pay this hospital? I like paid like $30,000 for these scissors. I'm keeping them. And then they called in security and took me out anyways. But I remember thinking, I put up those scissors and I realized that something significant had happened to the baby. She'd been cut off from her source of food. And you know what babies do when they get cut off from the sources of food? They start crying and they need food. And you're like, clear the room. We need some privacy. We need some food in this baby, right? And the Bible says that when you and I were born, we were born separated from God. That's what sin is, isn't it? And we were cut from the spiritual umbilical cord to God that gives us nourishment, that gives us peace and contentment and satisfaction. And you know what I did when I was separated from God? I went and looked for food in all the wrong places. I was trying to find gods that would save me. I was trying to find things that would fill my life. And you know what Jesus did? He came and he gave a new source, a new way of getting food. It's called the cross. And he died. And he said, if you come to me, you'll start feeding and be fed by God through me. And I'm convinced that that message, that God, we call that the good news as Christians, that message is not just a historic message. That is a worldview and a source of strength as we practice and we worship God. Husbands, men, are you worshiping God? Is He your source of strength, or is it your wife or another person or another thing? Do you have an idol? What is idolatry? Idol is going to, idolatry is going to things and looking to things or people to do for you what only God can do. And you know what happens to a lot of relationships? We go to the person we're in a relationship with and we say, you're going to be a God to me. You're going to save me and provide for me. And you're going to be my idol and my thing. And you know what? Your wife husbands cannot be Jesus to you. She can't fill you with what you need that only God can give. And wives, your husband is not the Messiah. He's not going to be perfect. He's not going to be heroic all the time. He's going to make mistakes. And he is not going to be able to give you what only God can give you in Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that what makes marriages work is when God is ultimate and marriage is not. And what, listen, what culture does is culture says that marriage is ultimate or relationships are ultimate or romantic love is ultimate or Hollywood, pink, whatever is ultimate. You know what? It's a lie. I am always telling I'm always telling couples I'm telling couples what was taught to Sherry and I in our pre-marriage counseling by the way I just plagiarize. but I always tell couples when I'm about to marry them or even couples that come and talk to me listen the geometry of a great relationship is a triangle and that triangle has God at the top and then there's husbands and there's wives and the the more that husbands and wives move closer to God the closer they come together in a real relationship but what's happened is, is that, 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 that that triangle's been destroyed. It's being, it's being demolished by society. This is why we're exiles. We're doing something different. We're restoring in our mind and our hearts this triangle, this geometry that makes life work with God at the top. And we're saying, God is my source of strength. God is ultimate. Marriage is not. That is what makes life and relationships work. And as we get that down, listen, as we get that down, we come back to 1 Peter chapter 3. And, and, we, and we go, okay, all right, so what makes marriage work? What makes relationships work? God is ultimate. Marriage is not. You could fill in the blank. Uh, God is ultimate. Singleness is not. God is ultimate. Work is not. I mean, you could fill in the blank, but certainly God is ultimate. Marriage is not. And once we have that, then we are able to hear from God about what our roles are in the marriage relationship. Of course, if we don't have a relationship with God. Of course, if we don't see ourselves as forgiveness, given, Of course, if we aren't walking in grace, we aren't prepared to hear what God's instructing us to do as husbands and wives. Because that's not our identity. God, God doesn't tell me what to do. I, I, I have a plan. I hope God blesses it. But Whatever. But when you're restored and reconciled to God, you listen to God. And you say, okay, God, you've designed me. You've designed my salvation. So what is it that you are calling me to do? And each person in the marriage has a role. The wives and the husbands. And so we move first to the wives. So what makes marriage work? It's when wives submit. Wives submit. He says it clearly right there. 1 Peter 3, verse 1, It's like, that's easy for you to say. You're a man preaching. But here it is in the verse. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, but let's just talk about it really quick. What do we mean by submit at Crosspoint? Biblical submission is granting. Everybody say granting. Granting permission to another person to be a leader in your life. That's biblical submission. So I want you to know that. Biblical submission is not, you're not forced. God doesn't come to you and say, I am forcing you to submit. He doesn't put a chip in our brain and make us a robot and we go, I will follow you and never think or act. You know what I mean? Like that's not the way it works. What God is saying is, God is saying, I'm giving you a decision. And the decision I'm giving you every day is to volunteer and to grant permission to your husband, wives, in this situation, to be a leader in your life. It's up to you, but this is what I'm instructing you to do, to grant permission. You're like, man, that's, that's provocative. And not only is that provocative, but in the context it's provocative because he's even saying, wives, even if your husband is not a Christian, even if your husband uh, doesn't have a spiritual life with God, You are still called to grant him permission to be the leader in your home and in your life. He's the leader. Just like we talked about last week. When we're working for an employer, we are to grant permission to authorities that God has placed over us to lead us. We grant them permission. Same thing with the wives. Now, wives in our culture and and, and women in our culture kind of go, okay, now, how do I do that? I mean, how how do I... How do, I, how do I make that happen? What makes that possible? And I would just say, again, there's two things that I want to speak to you about from the text that makes this possible in a woman's life. The first thing is, is that a, a wife needs to be and has to be, in order to submit, has to be God-centered. In fact, when you look at this text and you you read kind of the the details of it, and you look at verse 2, it says, he's talking about a wife with an unbelieving husband, and it says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, literally, what that saying is, uh, in, in the Greek, it says, as they observe your pure conduct in fear. He's saying their husband should see in you conduct flowing from you. And what is causing that conduct to flow that's a witness to an unbelieving husband? Fear. In fear. Who is the wife fearing? The wife is fearing God. How do we define fear? We define fear as a healthy apprehension of God's displeasure and a sense of awe of God's greatness. And when a woman has a healthy, everybody say healthy, apprehension of God's displeasure... Not like a thief coming to steal from you or somebody coming to abuse you, but like like a child with her father. A healthy apprehension of God's displeasure and an awe of God's greatness. When a woman is filled with an awe of God's greatness and fears him, and from that flows conduct that that is illuminating and is and is delightful and is transformed, it gets the attention of her husband. And if he's an unbeliever, it bears witness to the greatness of God. And it's very clear that he's saying, listen, wives, you have to be God-centered. You've got to be God-centered in the way you think. You can't be me-centered. You can't, you can't be other-centered. You've got to be God-centered in your mind. You have to have a healthy apprehension of God's displeasure and a sense of awe of God's greatness, and that will help you To be God-centered and to submit. Here's the second thing. So powerful. Not only get God-centered, but get God's worth. Get your worth from God. He says here, do not let... In fact, look for the word adorning. He says, do not let your adorning be external... Again, he uses the same word in verse 4. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. This is a powerful word. In fact, the root word that's being used in the Greek for adorn is cosmos. When you think about cosmos, what does cosmos mean? When we say cosmos, we're usually uh, referring to the design or the ordered universe. Even those who are naturalists, when they use the word cosmos, they are talking about design. When Carl Sagan was talking about uh, uh, kind of the, the randomness of and and the, and the and the lack of of meaning, and he talked about the principle of mediocrity with the universe, yet he still used the word cosmos, and he didn't know, or he did know, of course, but but he, he had a hardened heart to realize that what he was talking about is that when you look at the at the universe, it has design, it has meaning. There's order. To the universe, cosmos. Now, what's the opposite word of cosmos? It's chaos. Right? So, you got chaos and you got cosmos. Cosmos is an ordered design, chaos is out of control. And in Genesis 1, when the void was there, right? The the void was there, and, and Genesis 1, and God's sovereign efficacious word spoke into that void of chaos. What did he create out of chaos? He created order. He created the cosmos out of nothing. He said, let there be light. And there was light, the greatness of God in creation. And when you apply and you download that powerful idea of the word adorning and you read these verses, he says, do not let your cosmos or how you order or think of your identity, think of your design, don't let your identity be rooted or the way you think about yourself be ordered by external things, but let your identity and the way you think about your design and your identity be about internal things. Don't base it off of your clothes or your cars or your home. Don't base your cosmos or your design of your identity on whether boys find you cute or pretty or not or, or whether people find you attractive or not. Base your identity and the way you order your identity based upon what God is doing in your heart. Bottom line, Peter's saying, Wives, get your worth from God god and when women don't have worth from god they're seeking it in other ways and they become insecure and when you become insecure guess what you cannot do you can't submit to leaders that god gives to you in fact that's a principle for all of us isn't it i'm not very good at submitting to my boss if i'm filled with insecurity i'm not very good at submitting to anybody that god gives to me me to submit to if i if i if i don't feel like i have worth If we're seeking self-worth, that doesn't work. What we need is God-worth. What we need to remember is that God loves us, that God is doing something in our lives on the inside powerfully in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16. You remember when Samuel was going to find the king of Israel, and he saw that little scrawny little David dude, and he was like, this can't be it. And God told Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Say, so how, can, how can a wife grant permission and, and be motivated to grant permission to her husband to leave her home? and lead her. She has to find her worth in God. She has to remember that God has given her worth. Her worth doesn't come from her husband or or come from her position or come from her power or influence or manipulation. Her worth comes from God, and he gives the example of Sarah. You remember Sarah and Abraham? I mean, talk about a hard husband to submit to. I would say Abraham was difficult to submit to. Can I get an amen? Amen. Remember, they, there they were, book of Genesis, chapter 12. They're living in a great city, Haran. They've got a great condo. They've got a great apartment. They've got a flat screen TV. She's barren. She can't have babies, so you might as well have a nice living room and live in a nice city. And your husband's got a great job, and you've got everything you want. You've got annual vacation. You've got a good retirement plan. She's living high off the hog, as we say down in Oklahoma. And Abraham goes out one day, and God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to put you on a need to know basis. And what I need you to do is, I need you to leave this comfortable life that you're living in this great city with this great stuff and a great car. I need you to leave all of that stuff, and I'm going to take you to a place and to an address that I'm not going to reveal to you right now. Abraham goes home, looks at his wife, and says, Sweetheart, I know it's a nice pad. I know our whole family is here. My daddy, my brother, we're all living here. But God has spoken to me. And God has said that we are to go to a place that we cannot go. And you know what Sarah did? Sarah said, okay. And it says that Sarah who hoped in God, whose worth was from God, was so secure in her relationship with God that she could say, I don't know if I trust Abraham, but I trust God of Abraham. I don't know if Abraham's going to make all the decisions. And by the way, he made some horrible decisions. And yet she said, but God is still ruling over this. And so I am going to grant him permission. I'm going to call him Lord, and I'm going to follow him as God is leading him. And this is the way God has set it up. You remember when God caught Adam and Eve in sin? And it was Eve who gave Adam the fruit. Remember that? She was like, that's good. Take this, honey. And he was like, duh, okay. Right? And who did God confront in that circumstance? Adam. God never, he didn't go to Eve and say, Eve, why did you give him the fruit? He went to Adam and said, why would you eat? And why was that? Because God was saying, I've given you responsibility for this girl, for this garden, for this life. God was showing and demonstrating that this is the way God works. We as men submit to Christ. Wives grant permission to husbands. This is the order and design of God. And we can't fight it. And so the only way to cope with this. Is to find our worth. And certainly wives to find worth. In God for their lives. Hmm. You see God is ultimate marriage is not. Wives are to submit. And here's the final thing. What makes marriage work? Biblically. Husbands serve. Husbands serve. Now husbands listen carefully to this. Verse 7. And men in general. Future husbands, current husbands, former husbands. Listen carefully as men. This is good masculine biblical teaching right here. Verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, let's deal with that real quick. Weaker doesn't mean in moral morally weaker or spiritually weaker in fact he says that women are fellow heirs with us as men in the grace of life so there's equality between men and women before God spiritually so weaker vessel has to stand for a physical reality not a spiritual or moral reality it's not always the case but most of the time it's the case that the man in the relationship is physically stronger right now that That gets a little sketchy as we get older and eat too many donuts in between services. Typically, this is the case. Women as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. It's very clear that husbands are to honor and serve their wives. And let me supplement this passage really quick with another important passage from Ephesians 5. The Apostle Paul says in verses 24 and following, he says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, let me sum this up really quick. When you take First Peter in Ephesians 5, here's what he's saying. He's saying that husbands are to base their leadership and model their leadership after the Savior. That husbands are to be servant leaders, not dominating leaders, not dictating leaders, but to base all of their leadership in their home off of Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do for the church? Jesus died for the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus cherished the church. Jesus prioritized and pursued and built his church through sacrificial love and there's no way that a marriage can work unless a husband is so secure in Christ that he can humbly serve his wife and cherish her above all things like Jesus does the church and I think any wife would agree it gets pretty easy to grant permission to a leader who's willing to serve who's willing to be like Jesus 1 Peter 3 is so practical because he goes into some categories. Let me go through these really quick. Say, how can I serve my wife as Christ served the church? I would say, number one, that you should physically be available. It says, live with your wives. Literally, dwell with your wives. Now, what I mean by that is being present and talking and Pursuing and being with your wife. I looked at a survey recently. It says that the average time that a husband and a wife spends with each other is 37 minutes a week. Now, beloved, that is not long enough, right? And it's not up to my wife. It's not up to Sherry to come to me and come up with a plan for how I need to spend more time with her. You know what? It's my job to pursue her and to spend time with her, which. You have to get creative about, by the way, at times. I've got four children. It was really easy when they were all little babies because when they're babies, you put them in a room at 7.30 at night, you lock the door, and you ignore the screaming. Can I get an amen? (laughs) It's time for Daddy to pursue Mama a little bit, you know? Then they get older. I've got sitting up front here two beautiful girls who are now teenagers, right? And teenagers stay up later than 7.30 at night. So Sherry and I have had to readjust and really, I've had to creatively think through how can I spend more time with Sherry and make sure that her and I are getting quality time together. So sometimes we wake up a little earlier in the morning. We have coffee together sometimes in the morning. Sometimes we just have to stay up later and lose sleep. Listen, a good marriage is worth losing sleep over. Can I get an amen? Just stay up, drink coffee. Stay up till two. The, the point is that we are to dwell with our wives. We have to dwell with our wives, and nothing, if we need to give up a hobby or give up a TV show or give up watching sports all the time, in order that we are dwelling with our wives and serving them by being present and available, that's what we need to do. Now, sometimes, husbands, your job is to go to your wife and say, Listen, I'm trying to spend time with you, but listen, we gotta, we got reor- we to gotta, we gotta organize our priorities so that you, too, are having more time. And I understand that in our culture and with the finances the way they are, that most of the times that two people need to work in the home. But if you have two people working in the home, that makes it more difficult than ever before. And one of two things needs to happen. Number one, you need to be very intentional about eliminating unnecessary things in your life to make that work in your relationship. Or number two, pray about God providing for you in such a way to where the wife can be home a little bit more and both people aren't worn out by working all the time. You've got to be creative. You've got to dwell together. And then you've got to, you've got to, you've got to make that happen in your, in your family and for your marriage. You've got to serve. Think about all that Jesus does to serve us. That's what we've got to do physically. Here's the second thing, intellectually. Like, we actually have to think through this. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, live with your wives in knowledge. Everybody say knowledge. That means you need to know some stuff. you gotta, You got to be, another, one translation says considerately. You've got to be considerate. you got to think about what is your wife's dreams and fears? What are her frustrations? What are her weaknesses? What are her strengths? How are you encouraging her strengths? How are you filling the gap in her weaknesses? How are you guiding her spiritually? How are, you, are you knowing your wife? You know, knowing Sherry is not just me knowing she's 5 foot 5 and has brown hair and I love her with all my heart. Knowing Sherry is I know what's going on in her heart. I know where she's at this week. I know where she's at this month. I know when she's having a good day and a bad day. I'm aware. I'm considerate. Now you're like, "Are you perfect at that?" Most of the time. No. I'm <laughs> not perfect at that. Sometimes she has to remind me like, "Dude, you're not you're not thinking" If we think that leadership somehow is our wives just doing what we want, and we don't, we're not considerate, we're nuts, man. That's not Jesus. That's not leadership in the home. We've got to know things about our wife. Here's the third thing. Not only do we serve our wives physically and intellectually, but also emotionally. Husbands, live with your wives in knowledge, showing honor. You could circle that word honor to the woman. Do you honor your wife? Does she feel like when you come home, she's going to be honored and cherished and prioritized? Does she feel like she's being lifted up? Does she feel like you're speaking good, clean, wonderful words over her life? Is she honored? And so that emotionally, she feels completely safe and secure. Finally, there's a spiritual warning. Not only are we to serve our wives... Intellectually, emotionally, physically, but spiritually, there's a warning. He says here, do this, husbands, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And God has a promise for husbands. God says, if you're not serving your wife with a servant-leader attitude, I will interrupt your spiritual life with me. I will interrupt spiritual blessing, spiritual growth in your life. Your prayers will be hindered. How humbling is that? That's such a sobering thought for me as a husband. You know, I can get up here and preach and teach and, and, and walk around and we can all laugh at church and I can lead a life group and, and I can serve in the church and look spiritual. But if I'm not serving my wife, guess what's not happening in my life? I'm not being transformed. Now, can I just say, this is such a tough message. It's very convicting, but it's very encouraging. And I just want to say, none of us are perfect. We are broken together in this. And you know what? God has forgiveness and cleansing. Some of us have some growing to do in this. I know that. You're at a church where you're given time to grow and develop. Some of us have failed significantly in these areas, and we're seeking God to give us a new start, God will give you a new start. He'll give you a new starting line, but every time God comes into our life, He says, I want to, I want to do something above and beyond all you could ever ask for and imagine in all of your relationships, so let's start again, and let's look at this again, and let's make God the ultimate thing in our life. Wives, let's grant our husbands permission to lead us. And husbands, let's be servant leaders, modeling our leadership after Jesus and the gospel. Things work. You get better results. If we try to do it like the world, we'll get their results. If we surrender to God and the gospel and his grace and we let him work these things in our heart, we will be blessed and our homes will grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Uh, because ultimately our life does not come down to our performance or our obedience. Ultimately, our life comes down to how you model for us what love looks like. You have not asked us to do anything that you have not yourself done. You, Father, have in love sent your Son to die for us, and you, Jesus, submitted and granted the Father Leadership in your life to do his will, to do what he was calling you to do and making the sacrifice. You cried out, Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. You modeled for us perfectly. And Holy Spirit, you have responded by submitting to, to the Christ, by coming and awakening hearts and applying grace to minds and souls. And now, Holy Spirit, we need you to work in our life. We need you to work in our hearts. We cannot do what God is calling us to do in victory, at what we are being called to do, unless you do it in us and through us. So we surrender. We give you our life. We know that one sermon isn't going to perfect us, and one church service isn't going to make all of our problems go away. But, but, God, we pray that you are pursuing us in such a way to where we're taking steps forward. In our life and in our relationships. We know that we are broken. But we also know that being broken does not mean we are defeated. So we choose to believe. We choose hope. We choose love. And we choose your truth for our life. If you are somebody, you don't know God and and you're not a Christian, you ask, how do I become a Christian? How do I get this Jesus thing going in my life? The way to do it is to stop and to turn from evil... Turn from darkness and to turn to Christ as your Savior. And there's no perfect prayer or magic formula. It's just calling on the name of Christ and saying, I'm broken. I believe you came to fix me on the cross. I believe that you give me new life. If you call on the name of the Lord today, you will be saved. You'll become a Christian. And God will give you resources unthought of and victories in your life. Let us give our life to him. Let's stand as we worship this good and saving and loving God. Amen.